Hey everybody, welcome to Hacking Into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter, and regularly we'll be catching up with a variety of guests from CISOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, new people into the industry, and more, each sharing their story, industry knowledge, and advice on how others can navigate success in their career. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hacking Into Security. So today we're here with Claire Powers. Claire is the director of 27 Lanterns, author of the Secure CIO, host of the Secure CIO podcast, and a mum of four. Claire, welcome. Thanks, Ricky. It's good to be on your podcast today. You're a busy person. I am a busy person. I'm very fortunate to be a busy person. <laughs> so I've known you, for, well, I'm not sure, but a few years now, and it's been great to watch your journey and you've got a really diverse background and it's so interesting to see the different aspects you can share with people and obviously your customers and also audience through your book and oh good book by the way and the podcast itself so just a plug claire hasn't asked me to do this but any aspiring i guess companies looking to hire senior security people or start a security program read claire's book also i think any aspiring cso's it'll give you some good insight into the mind of a CIO and, and potentially the things they'd be looking for. So check it out as well. So my, my first question to all guests, pretty simple, but who are you? I'm Claire Pales. <laughs> I'm a consultant and also the director and founder of 27 Lanterns. And my consultancy is really about helping organisations reduce their cyber risk by hiring the right cybersecurity leader. And I came to this position in my career through being in security for the last sort of 15, 16, 17 years, I enjoyed my career in security, but noticed that there was a, when I got back from living overseas, that there was a lack of security recruiters and I found repatriating really hard. And we might talk a bit more about that later, but I just found my experience wasn't landing with recruiters. And so I thought there's a great opportunity here for me to do something that I love, and that is to build teams and to help the industry at a time where everybody was starting to talk about the skills shortage about five years ago. So I built 27 Lanterns on the basis that I could provide interim security leadership to CIOs, but also use my network to help them find the right leader for their business and where their security maturity was at at the time. So that's who I am today. Fantastic. So obviously it's been a bit of a journey for you, not just locally in Australia, but internationally as well. But how did you get into security in the first place? So I'd always wanted to work in this sort of industry. When I was very young, I wanted to be a police officer and then I wanted to be a lawyer. And so my first job was actually as a paralegal in a legal team. Okay. And so I worked at the Yellow Pages. And through that, I met the woman who was leading the corporate security function at Telstra. And I sat down with her and said, this is what I'm doing at uni. This is what I've been doing as a paralegal. You know, do you think that corporate security might be something that I could do? And she said, yes. And she actually created a position for me, which I, to, to this day, I still feel very grateful for. And that really opened the door for me to information security and corporate security. And I stayed there for five years in that particular group as a expert witness on behalf of Telstra. And I would go off to different court cases and give call records and interception records and mobile phone cell tower records and all sorts of weird and wonderful details on behalf of the prosecution. And 
After that, I got tapped on the shoulder to go and lead a fraud team. And so I went and did that. And then I left Telstra after 10 years and took a package and was fortunate after that to then be given an opportunity to go and live in Hong Kong where I worked in cyber. So I sort of have worked in in legal and in corporate security and then in fraud and then in cyber. So it's been kind of an evolution, but the whole time having that sort of underlying experience of governance and rules, Mm. (laughs) structures, frameworks, helping organisations to protect themselves from people out there who aren't necessarily doing the right thing. So what was that like working in Hong Kong compared to Australia? It was pretty incredible, actually. And and again, it was through a conversation that I had with someone about the fact that I didn't really know what I wanted to do next after I left Telstra. And she lived in Hong Kong and she rang me one day and said, there's this cyber job going at a power company. Do you reckon you'd be interested? Wow. And, That's a bit different. Um, very different to what I'd been doing. And so anyway, off I went for an interview and it was the right fit for me and and obviously for the organisation. So, But it was a massive baptism of fire, like three and a half years I did there in a power company. And yes, Telstra is a utility, but not in the same way. And I ended up leading a team in Hong Kong who were locally based there, but I also had responsibility for the Australian business, the Indian business, and we had eight joint ventures in China. So I kind of went from leading a fraud team in Australia at Telstra to a regional role and learnt a lot. Fortunately, they had a strategy ready to go for me to deliver. And through that process, I learnt an incredible amount. And I built a team around me of experts who were really my peers because I was there as their leader, but the the technical expertise around me was incredible. And I had a great three and a half years there. And then I returned to Australia for personal reasons, but I hadn't done all I could do. But unfortunately Mm. for for me, I I had to come back to Australia. So it was... It was a, a pretty full-on place, Hong Kong, if you've ever visited there. It's like I got 10 years' experience in three and a half. It was <laughs> sensory overload and going out of fraud and into cyber. Yeah, the, the organisation really took a chance on me and it paid off for me because of the experience I had and paid off for them to build their cyber function further. So, well, great, yeah. great opportunity. Mm. And you, you touched on it on the intro, I guess some challenges coming back in. And this is one of the things I'm going to, I guess, discuss with yourself and having I guess exposure to a lot of different people in the industry and and not everybody is you know Australian or only has a local experience some people have international experience personally this is just my view based on the feedback is that I don't think international experience is as valued as highly as it should be if you don't mind I guess talk us through your experience from you know running working internationally you know big power company then coming back to Australia it was actually really hard. And I guess the few key things that I would talk about, as I mentioned earlier, I found recruiters at the time didn't really know what to do with my experience because because I'm not from a technical background and I can deal with technical people and I can understand the technical nature of cybersecurity. I don't have a computer science degree and I wasn't a pen tester or a or an architect or any of those things that were actually highly sought after five years ago when I got back. And I was a leader and I'd had great success around cultural change. We'd rolled out a huge program in Hong Kong across 5,000 staff to change the wow. culture of cybersecurity. That's and huge. so I came back thinking, this is pretty awesome. <laughs> but I just found repatriating really, really hard. And, you know, in fact, the, the way that I was able to get a job here was that a peer of mine was leaving his job and he rang me and said, I'm leaving and I think this might be a great opportunity for you. Do you want to apply? 
And I did that and I, I was fortunate to get the job. And so I was only out of work for nine weeks when I got back, but I'd actually started looking the whole time. My, I had a three-month probation in Hong Kong and I started looking straight away. So I was really out of work technically for or looking for work for four and a half months, five months. And I found that process really hard because because I'd left Telstra, I'd had my second child and then I'd gone to Hong Kong. I'd been out of the Australian industry for five years. And so people who knew me were my colleagues and my friends, but I didn't have a broad network here. Mm. So no one really knew who I was. And as I said, the jobs that were around at the time, recruiters didn't really see me as the right fit because I didn't have that depth of technical background. I had the understanding and expertise, but they couldn't read it in my CV. So again, you know, your network is everything. You know, if there's one thing that, that I could impress upon your audience, it's that you know, build your network, nurture your network, and it absolutely pays off. I'm sorry we weren't talking five years ago. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I guess with, with those challenges and obviously fortunately through a network, you landed a role, but I guess what, what keeps you in security those days, these days? There are two things that keep me in the security industry. One is definitely the community. It's such an amazing group of people. They've got a shared vision. They want to make the world more secure and I think it doesn't matter who you talk to, whether they're a leader or, a, an, you know, someone on the ground or a consultant or anyone who works in cyber, they've all got a really similar vision around and a curiosity around why people do what they do and, and how we can make things better. So the community certainly is one thing. But the second thing is my passion. So I have a massive passion to help organisations to reduce risk and my business obviously does that and I help CIOs who are holding, you know, spinning all these plates in IT and then get handed the security plate to spin as well. If I can go in and relieve them of that duty while I'm also helping to recruit, the risk goes down because someone is more focused on cybersecurity and writing board papers and dealing with vendors where the CIO can then free up that time to go and do what they should be doing and that's running the tech division. So if I can help them to not leave a role empty because that also increases risk, then you know, that, that kind of makes me happy. So yeah, reducing risk and definitely the security community. Yeah. Makes sense. Just touching on the, the, the question before, actually, just thinking about the international experience. What do you think, having had the experience, I guess the things that companies are missing out on if they're not giving people those opportunities or, because for me, there's definite advantages, but in your experience, what do you think they are having had that international experience and then bringing that back to Australia? I speak to lots of people who have worked overseas and they have all had the experience that I've had coming back to Australia, that the experience they've had isn't overly valued. And I actually think people who have lived and worked overseas are incredibly resilient. I mean, being an expat, as you would know, can be a very daunting thing, very isolated. If you don't speak the native language, that can also be very isolating. And so people overcome huge adversity to work in other countries Mm. and to build new communities and from a stakeholder perspective you know connecting with people inside the organization also for me you know I had large cash injections into the security budget that meant that I had a lot of experience that if I had been in Australia I may not have have been able to achieve in such a short period so I think what some companies are missing out on is these really resilient leaders who have learnt to lead people sometimes across borders and across different types of organisations 
but also they face cultural challenges that often makes them far more inclusive and accepting of people because they've been in their own minority position before. You know, even if they're going to a Western country like the UK or the US, they're still a foreigner. And so I think organisations who embrace people who have short or long-term experience in other countries, they can gain those additional elements or additional traits of a person who hasn't just been here in Oz but has seen so much else that goes on in the world and, and may have worked in countries where the cybersecurity risks are greater or different and therefore the colour of their experience is, is much different as well. Yeah, I, mean, I can't see how variety of experience can actually do any harm. If anything, it's an it's a additional benefit. Yeah, it's from a diversity perspective. I think it brings a different diversity of thought that I think people should definitely consider. Time for a quick break. I'm Ricky Burke. In my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of CyberSec People, a leading cybersecurity recruitment company, where we support organizations across the US and APAC in hiring cybersecurity talent. Through our connections and reach into the security community, our deep industry knowledge, we save organizations time when hiring. We have a 98% success rate and a three-year track record that demonstrates we only have to send, on average, two applicants to find success. If your organization is hiring, reach out as we'd love to discuss what that means for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the podcast. It's interesting because there's a lot of talk about diversity in the industry, but there are these sort of invisible barriers sometimes where people do struggle, which is really sad to see. I mean, I know people that have come over on with permanent res- residence visa, got five plus years experience overseas. They come over here with their experience and nine months in, they're still struggling to get a job. You know, that's a tough experience in so many ways. And there must be opportunities for those people, but they're just not finding them for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I also had a friend who looked for work for five months and he ended up changing his name on his resume because he's Sri Lankan and, and he has a very Sri Lankan name. Amazing experience, really great operator. But the minute he changed his name on his CV, he started to get calls. And unfortunately, that was a few years ago now, but unfortunately, that's still the case. And, you know, I, I think there's a, a company in the US, I, I don't remember who it is, but they have trialed taking people's personal details off the top of the CV. So you can't see their name or their gender or where they live to try. And I think another one they took off was universities or taking away whether they live in an affluent area or not and and see how the recruiters respond to that. Because I think it's a huge, like people judge very quickly and we all do it. But if you don't have that information to feed that bias, then I think the outcomes can be very different. Yeah, that's interesting. So reflecting more about what you, what you do these days is a very unique position. So looking at those organizations that are potentially looking at their first hire in security or, or working on that sort of strategy piece, what do you think are the, the key things that maybe an organization should be aware of, first of all, when looking for the first CISO? I definitely think that organizations need to think about what does their organization need in that leader right now. So you can't look for a CISO that can do it all. and You know, I know, Ricky, you would have seen job ads just as I have that have job descriptions that have a very broad remit and they're looking for someone who has very broad experience or has many, many years of experience in particular areas. And organisations don't need all that skills and experience at once. And 
the capability you need today isn't the capability you needed two years ago and it's certainly not the capability you'll need in two years time you know your organization's current maturity or security posture should be dictating the type of leader that you take on and if you need a CISO and your organization is mature enough to have a C-level leader then you need to recognize what that person needs to do and they're probably going to need a team of complementary staff around them or if you're looking for a head of information security because you want to build a team, they might be the first person you hire and then they select the people around them like an architect or an analyst or, or a specialist that they want to sit around them. So certainly the first thing would be work out what your security posture is. Don't wait for a leader to come in and do that for you. If you've got a need for a leadership hire, work out why you're hiring them and what skills they need to deliver to the organisation what the organisation needs today. And I think for security leaders who are looking for their first CISO job or the opportunities that are out there, they need to be clear on what type of business they want to work for too because there's lots of CISO jobs out there but without really working out who you want to work for, you might find that you want to work in banking but the CISO in a bank is much different to the CISO in a power company or the CISO in a retail organisation. So CIOs who are hiring have to recognise that they'll have particular people applying for the jobs who are after a particular type of experience as well. So they need to manage their job description on that basis, that they might be a retailer and they might not find CISOs in their shortlist who have already worked as a CISO in retail. Does that make sense? Massively, yeah. And we've touched on this before recording, but also not all job descriptions are the same. Different roles, different companies can have maybe the same title, but different responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, as I just mentioned about, you know, big banks, for example, the CISO might have 250 staff below them, Hmm. or then you might have a super company who has three staff. And so finding the right balance for your organisation of what sort of leader you need and what sort of staff you need below them and what sort of third parties you use, you know, in-source, outsource and co-source, that's really important as well because the team in your business won't necessarily be able to do everything. And even the banks who have 250 or 300 staff, they still use outsource partners. You know, the, the recognition that your strategy might need to deliver certain things, but the leader and the team in your side of your organisation won't always be the people who are going to deliver that for you. Yeah, they can't do everything. Mm. So just through your experience, what are the, I guess, unexpected challenges that these organisations may come across when looking at that first CISO? I think some businesses don't necessarily understand the need for security uplift. So they might bring in a leader who is there because they're a regulated and they need someone who to, to help them around the security in an organisation is sometimes something that sits outside of compliance. So, you know, you, you need to meet certain regulations but you also need to uplift the knowledge and the behaviours of the people in your business. And so investing in both sides, some technology, some compliance, but also investing in the, I don't like saying softer side, but those, you know, the relationship side and that type of thing, that can take time. You know, you can implement tools relatively quickly within, within months, but that relationship side, building trust in the CISO, building relationships around the business to uplift security, that can take time. So I think one of the unexpected challenges is you need time to make security work and then you also need investment and sometimes that return on that investment isn't always apparent very quickly. 
you know, sometimes you only see the return on your investment when p- people around you are being breached and you're not, or right. you get breached, but you can control it very quickly. So or you're, you're aware of it. <laughs> oh, you're aware of it. Exactly right. You actually discover that, that there's been a problem. So, and to that point, no amount of technical controls will prevent every type of incident. So, you know, behavior change is so important and getting your organization to understand the, the role that they play. And I know that's very cliche and we've been talking about this for decades, but Staff in the organisation need to understand security, you know, not as much as you see so in your security team, but just understand what's going on around them. And fortunately for us at the moment, the media is really starting to pick up on this stuff. The government's starting to talk about it more, you know, and, and we don't want to create a situation of fear. We want to create a situation of people feeling positive about the impact that they're able to contribute. Yeah. So looking at the, the CISOs of today or the CISOs of tomorrow, what do you think based on what you see and and how you've helped organisations, what do you think makes a good CISO? I think a good CISO has leadership skills and obviously experience in security or risk or that side of things is a given if you're going to be in the C level of the information security organisation you need to have that depth of background in security and risk and and have be seasoned you know have have had experience across many years in your career of seeing things and experiencing things and things that you can't learn in a textbook. So what I will say, though, about leadership skills is that they're not always something you can learn through your job. Sometimes you need training and professional development in that side of things as well. So I think a CISO who is always investing in themselves is important. Another trait is certainly patience and understanding that, as I spoke about earlier, security change takes time. And so being patient in your day-to-day, being patient during an incident, being patient in waiting for investment, all of those things, understanding that it will come. It's just a case of, you know, when. And so being uh, comfortable to put in the groundwork but being patient to know that, it will, you know, the, the value will come back to you is important. And the two other things I would say is being commercially minded. So if you don't understand how your business operates and what's of value to them and, and the customers, then it's very hard for you to make appropriate security decisions. So really understanding, you know, how, you know, talking to the COO on a regular basis around the operations of the organisation and knowing the impact that security might have on the the commercial nature of the business. And the last one would be knowing the value of relationships, trusted relationships, and that, you know, you might just spend your days in meetings building relationships with people, but at the end of the day they'll become very key when you have an incident and the board knows who you are or you have an incident and the people in your customer service team, you know, know who you are when people are calling the call centre to say, where is my data? You know, or having a relationship with the lawyers if there's a, a data breach or, you know, it's it's all that sharpening of the axe, I suppose, that, you know, seeing the value in, in those relationships. It's, it's those relationships that allow you to get things done. I guess if you can build those in the right way and rather than force things through, it's going to make your job, I think, a bit easier. Yeah, and it harks back to my earlier point about how I've achieved, how I've landed the jobs in my career and how I've built a business over the last four years is all through trusted relationships. And so whether you're a CISO or you're a younger or more junior professional, starting to build relationships now is really, really important for the future of your career. And I mean, I'd probably say that about anybody, but given that we're in the security industry, I'll talk about CISOs, but certainly building those relationships is, is key. Could not agree with you more. So for the aspiring CISOs out there, there's, I guess, different types of people. I do predominantly see people 
in those CSO roles at the moment come from maybe sort of more risk or governance type backgrounds, not so many technical, but I know there's a, there's a couple and they're starting to, I think, mature. And there's definitely interest from security, technical security people to grow as well. What are the sort of maybe skills or mm. coaching things that you do that you, maybe you'd recommend to people to work on or they can develop to help put them on that sort of process? Yeah, I've got three. So the three things I would talk to aspiring CISOs about, one would be seek out experience in front of executives. This is almost always a a non-negotiable for my clients. If you have experience in front of executives, in front of boards, in front of audit committees, presenting at conferences, you know, that, that sort of unfiltered ability to deal with senior executives is something that as a CISO or a head of information security that really needs to be one of your core skills. So if you're aspiring to be in that seat, doing that role, find ways for you to be exposed to senior leaders, understanding what questions they have, understanding how they operate. That would be my number one tip for an aspiring CISO. The other two would be find a mentor or a coach to help you understand the CISO role because it it might not be for you. You might look at that and think that looks like the next step for me, but it's a thankless task being a CISO. It's a 24-7 job. You're signing up to some pretty big challenges. Yes, it's a rewarding role, but see if you can become friends with or even through a formal mentoring program, make connections with a CISO who's doing it now or has been doing it for a while and really understand, okay, what are the nuts and bolts of this job and is it really what I want to do? And the third one is something I mentioned earlier. If you're a technical or a technically skilled professional, seek out some leadership training, go and do some leadership courses because on-the-job experience is great but true leadership skills can often come through sitting in a classroom with other leaders or or through an online course as well and that's incredibly valuable and not enough organisations promote technical people into leadership roles and then teach them how to be leaders. So I think that would be the three things if you're an aspiring CISO. Get time in front of execs, talk to CISOs who are doing it now and work out is it really the right job for me and get some leadership training under your belt as well. Show that you are professionally developing yourself in order to get that step-up position. That's great advice. Thanks. (laughs) Claire, thank you so much for your time. Really insightful and, yeah, I genuinely believe that uh, there's some good value there for people and especially those aspiring people or or even organisations that are looking to make some big changes in security. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me, Ricky. I really enjoyed chatting. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSec Ricky. And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest and then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Bye.